You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. All right, so take your Bibles to and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy, what am I saying, 1 Timothy? Yeah, I've had a week off and look what happens. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter, that would be. And an uh, important passage we're going to be looking at from 1 Peter 3. And so have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible and you're at one of the gatherings, there are Bibles at the back table. You can get up. The ushers won't bring it to you, not because they're lazy. We just want to be safe. So you get up and go get a Bible and then open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're taking one of those Bibles, take it home. It's a gift. Hand it out to someone if you have already have, have a Bible and, and pray that God uses it in their lives. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll look at that in just a moment. When it comes to various sports teams, like basketball, hockey, soccer, there is a term that gets used that some players get labeled with, and, and that is a term called a cherry picker. And these are players who oftentimes are always just kind of want to take the easy shot. They want to try to score, go for the goal, rather than being a team player and helping on defense. Now, you can also have, have other forms of cherries pickers in not just sports-related areas, but in other areas. And, and, and I was thinking about it this week. You can have cherry pickers when it comes to the Word of God, whether it is teachers or preachers or Christians who kind of take the easy, wonderful verses and scenes out of different aspects of God's Word and that promise blessing or promise the good life or promise healing or abundance for you or for your family or for others or for a nation, and, and it's taking and picking out passages and getting God's word to kind of say what you want it to say, not looking at it in context, but kind of ignoring the context of, of what is being said and, and using it to kind of, you know, make you, you know, feel good or to get others to feel good about what God's word has to say. And you know what, in many ways, we've probably have all been guilty of this at some time or another. Well, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 here, the passage we're going to be looking at today can sadly be used by cherry pickers in a little different of a way. And it can be used by people who don't love the Word of God, but they love to take passages and verses that we're going to be looking at today, and, and they're going to take it again out of context. They're not going to look at it in the light of biblical Christianity and what all of the Bible has to say, and they will use some of these verses that we're going to be talking about to make Christianity look really bad and make it look irrelevant, archaic, demeaning, and, and even repressive, even hateful and dangerous, especially towards women by what we have to talk about. Or sadly, this, pa- this passage and these verses can also be used by legalistic cherry pickers to place their wives or to place women into a lifestyle that isn't biblical and can be, in fact, be hurtful and even sometimes even, sadly, even abusive, all in the name of Christ, in the name of God's word. And that is so sad. And today we are going to be looking at a very controversial, if you want to say it, to some, and yet very beautiful passage of Scripture, very important passage. And, and understood, when we understand this biblically, in the light of the whole counsel of God's Word, it is a beautiful, life-giving, life-building passage of Scripture. Now, it might be a little bit of a blessing that uh, I get to preach this sermon, in particular, to a camera today. 
and not to a live audience. It's not the ideal, but, but if I was just to show you right now, just kind of show you what I'm looking at right now. So now you'll get a little glimpse here of, of what I get to look at here today. And, and, and all you see, lights, camera, and no audience here. It's just me and it's the camera, which is maybe a little bit safe. It's a little bit weird. It's a little difficult, but maybe it's kind of safe. Because if I were to preach this sermon perhaps to a live audience, I might want to wear something like this. And, uh, and, and it just might be much easier for me to wear th- this kind of an outfit to deflect some of the stares, the looks, or maybe something that you might have in your hand and you might want to throw at me when I say certain things that I'm going to say today from God's word. Now, we might laugh about that a little bit and, and yet maybe not so much because this is a serious topic. And, and yet we're going to see that God's word gives life. And I trust that we will see that life and that power and that strength in God's word today. You see, this passage that we're looking at today from God's word can perhaps get one's blood pressure going if taken out of context and not biblically understood. It can make one angry or it can even also bring up certain hurtful uh, feelings because of things that have happened to you in the past in light of verses like this. And yet, here in 1 Peter chapter 3, this is just one of the scripture passages that we see God's beautiful design for marriage, God's beautiful design for wives and for husbands. And it has been my prayer and the prayer team that has been praying today specifically for this message, and and it is our desire together as a church that the Holy Spirit would guard and guide my words and that I would be true to the word of God and properly share these beautiful words of scripture with you today carefully, compassionately, but also seriously because these are important passages and, and commands that we have here in God's word. We can't avoid what is, being, what is in God's word. And this is one of the things at, at, at Hope Bible Church where we love to do expository preaching where we oftentimes work through entire books of the Bible or major passages of scripture and you just can't breeze over or cherry pick or jump over certain passages. We gotta plow through it. But we find life and we find strength and meaning in this. And you have to understand that God cares about the strength of the marriage. He cares about the strength of your marriage if you're married or one day if you're gonna be married. He, he cares and is concerned about the strength of the marriage. And the strength of a marriage will affect the family. The strength of the family will affect the strength of the church, the strength of the community, and the strength of the nation. It is a big deal what we're talking about here today. And how we need to uphold and encourage and seek to live biblical marriages to, in, to see these grow in our church and in our lives. And we get the real help from God's word when it comes to how marriages ought to be. It's kind of interesting that Peter addresses the subject of marriage in a letter to Christians who are suffering persecution. You kind of think maybe he has some other things to write, write about when people are being persecuted and the oppression is building. But what he is saying, and this is so important, that even in the midst of tough times, tough times surrounding the nation, tough times surrounding our nation today, tough circumstances we might be facing, God is concerned that we do not lose our marriages. And instead, he desires and and he would love to see our marriages reflect his glory and reflect and proclaim his goodness and the excellencies of Christ as he works in our lives and works in our marriage relationships. No matter the state of your marriage, there is hope. 
Because our God is a God of hope. There's living hope because Christ is alive. But Peter starts out in this passage by addressing women. Now, married men, uh, just a little hint. Please, 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 please do not say after the service when you're driving home or say sometime this afternoon, wow, honey, that was a great sermon, wasn't it? I sure hope you were listening today. Don't say that to your wife, please. That just would not be smart. And and men, by the way, your time is coming, Lord willing, next Sunday. We're going to get into um, the hope for the marriage in relationship to husbands. Now, this sermon today is directed towards wives, but it's not only for wives, it's for husbands too. You're going to learn a lot in here, I believe. I learned a lot as I was going through this, as I was being sharpened in, in these truths. But it's also for those who perhaps one day hope that you will be married. This is for women that um, are striving to cultivate these elements into your life, into your inner life, into whether you are married or whether you are not married at this time. That these would be qualities that, that would be growing in your life. For the men that are, are, are watching, that are listening today, these are the qualities that you want to pray into the life of your wife. Or if one day you're not married yet and you're hoping one day to be married, young man, older man, however old you are and you're hoping to be married, these are elements and qualities you pray would be in that future wife. For parents and grandparents, these are the qualities that you should be, that we ought to be praying as parents and those of you who are grandparents or great-grandparents even, for your grandchildren or for your children and for your great-grandchildren when it comes to marriage. Because ultimately, this passage is for every one of us as it teaches us some important principles and truths about being a follower of Christ. These are very important. And so I trust that we're going to pay attention. Yet I understand that these truths today are radically countercultural. Yet when properly understood and lived out, will bring incredible joy and they are an incredible gift from God for us as children. This is God's beautiful design. And my hope and prayer is that these truths would be lived out and pursued biblically in humility and dependency upon God. So let's read. We're going to read the six verses here at first, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. So if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. There is hope. There is hope, living hope for marriages today. And today we're going to see at least three ways that we can experience Jesus Christ. We can experience living hope in marriage. The first one here, the first way we can experience Christ and see living hope developing in our lives is first of all, look to the Savior, not your spouse. Encourage you to write that down. And, and it starts at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I'll stop there. And that word, be subject, in some translations say be submissive, means to place or arrange under. To place under. Notice it also says, to your own husbands. 
This submission is not just to any or to all men, women. This is to your husband that you are to be subject to. Yes, God has placed other forms of authority in us, but the submission we're talking about here today is to your own husband. The submission, it can be an S word. It, it can be a dirty word. It can be greatly misunderstood, and especially today in our Western culture. And first, we must understand that God has established order, authority, and submission in every facet and element of our lives. We are seeing the order of creation be played out right, in, right before us in the last number of weeks here in the, in the Okanagan as we've seen the seasons change. Just It was a few weeks ago, it was summer-like weather and all of a sudden it's been kind of fall uh, weather and it's almost moving quickly, it seems, to winter. And so we see the order of creation even in the seasons. But even in the Trinity of God, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see their equality, but we also see that they have certain roles, that there's order, there's authority, and there's submission even when it comes to the Holy Spirit. In the home, in the church, in the workplace, in government, there's order, authority, and submission. Driving to church today, driving this next week, there's order, authority, and I hope submission as you obeyed or submitted to the traffic lights and to the signs that uh, were posted. There's order, authority, and submission all over, as I said. An airplane has a captain who's in command, who's in charge, followed by the first and sometimes even a second officer, or the co-pilots oftentimes. In an operating room, there can be many medical personnel, many doctors, but there's always one head surgeon who's heading up that operation. Wise pilots, wise surgeons will take the advice, the input from others, but at one point when, when push comes to shove, the buck stops with one of them and it stops with the person who's in charge. And it falls on the one who has been given that authority. Now when it comes to marriage, you can't have two heads when it comes to marriage. Now, Charlotte and I have never been dancers. It was part of our upbringing and plus I just have never, honestly I thought it's kind of lame. Sorry for those that you might be offended, especially that ballroom dancing kind of stuff. And, and the thing that I understand is when it comes to dancing, and especially ballroom kind of dancing, you can't have two leads. Someone has to take the lead. If, if both people are trying to lead, you're just going to be tripping and be incredibly frustrated. Well, in the same thing, you can't have two heads when it comes to a marriage. Someone has to have the ultimate authority. And God has chosen in his, in his sovereignty he has chosen men for this position. And understand this. This is an important position. This is a serious calling. And one day, men, every man who has a family under his authority will give an account to God for how he has led and loved his family. And that's going to be a different accounting than what mothers will give, wives and mothers will give. But men have been given that authority from God. Men and husbands are to be in submission to God's authority. And, and men, husbands, we are responsible to lead, to protect, to provide in a way that is loving, that is humble, and is servant-hearted, following the example of Jesus in Ephesians chapter, four, Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll talk more, Lord willing, on this next week. Now, Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamuth, that's quite a name. She is an author and a speaker, and our ladies have done some studies in some of their group time uh, studies that have taken place in the past by Nancy Lee DeMoss Wogomuth. And at the bottom of the e-news this week, there is a link 
to some of what I'm going to be talking about today. We'll also release it today on the online lobby for you as well. And it's just a link to a website and some ways that you can hear some of the things I'm talking about and and read and study it further. But here's what she had to say. The responsibility of men is to provide loving, humble, servant-hearted leadership in the home and in the church. Whether they assume and fulfill that responsibility or not, it is still their responsibility. She goes on to say, our responsibility as women, it is to respond to their leadership in humility, graciously following and submitted to God-ordained authority. This does not mean that we are brainless or weak. In fact, it takes incredible wisdom and strength of character to submit well in a way that is in accordance with, biblical, with the biblical pattern of submission. You see, when Peter says, wives be subject to Please understand that biblical submission in marriage is not me, Tarzan, you, Jane. It's not like that at all. Here are some other myths that Nancy Lee DeMoss Wogelmuth wrote about and uh, has mentioned when it comes to biblical submission. And, the, and, and here are some lies that um, sometimes people think and, and believe when it comes to biblical submission. Lie number one, the wife is inferior to the husband. And that one is a Ah, wrong. Biblical submission is not about intelligence or competence. You see, both male and female, husband and wife, have been, are created as equals by God, created in God's image, and both stand precious and in equal standing before God. And yet God has given to the husband and to the wife complementary and specific roles. Roles to complement one another. Roles that allow a marriage to flourish and to bring joy to a family, to a church, to a community, to a neighborhood, to a nation. Men and women are equals and yet have different roles and responsibilities. Here's another lie. The husband is the dictator. Ah, that one is wrong as well. That one isn't right. The woman, the wife is not a doormat. And sadly, there can be so much hurt and abuse that happens with this lie because some love to be able to think that this lie is, is, a, is the truth, and it is not. A husband that treats his wife like this is in great sin. This is not about blind submission and obedience, women. Listen up, that's very important. What we're talking about is not following in submission, in blind submission and obedience. It does not mean that you sin in order to submit. That if your husband asks you or calls you into an area of sin, you are not to follow because God's word trumps your husband's uh, rule in that way. And this doesn't mean that you just overlook sin and brush it over. It's not about you staying in a dangerous situation. It's not about you enduring emotional, physical abuse. And if this is happening in the situation that you're in, in your marriage right now, you need to get help. Please let us know. And, and we would be, be willing to help and to walk and to guide you and your family in this time. But this does mean at times that wives, you will. You will have to correct your husband. You will have to confront your husband. And you will need to do that gently and humbly and wisely and respectfully confronting sinful behavior, whether it's sins of omission, things that your husband has done, or certain things that he's not doing that God's word calls him to do. 
And there's times that you need to do that gently, wisely, respectfully, not nagging, not belittling, not manipulating, but to do it out of love with a heart of humility for your husband and for your marriage. You see, you have the husband See, when you have the husband and wife that are living out Ephesians 5, where the husband is loving his wife like Christ loved the church, and you have the wife coming under the authority of the husband in that way, where you see sacrifice and you see submission working together, it's a beautiful thing, a life-giving thing for a marriage and for a family. Here's another lie that people believe. The wife has no opinion, input, or ideas. And you're like, are you kidding me? Uh, again, that's wrong. God has given us wives. He's given us women who are incredible wives, gifted in many different ways. We would be fools as men not to listen and to learn from our wives. But the reality is there will be differences, right? doesn't take long for that. Plans, ideas, agendas, opinions, it's going to oftentimes gonna collide, going to clash. When opposites attract, oftentimes, right? That, when that happens, it needs to be talked about. It needs to be prayed about. There needs to oftentimes have time given, not quick and just quick decisions being made. And it's at times seeking wise counsel and advice from others when it comes to decision-making or some of the issues that we're going going through. More prayer put onto it. Praying for God's wisdom and God's direction. But at the end of the day, Husbands take from their wives, but God has take ideas and opinions and their thoughts and, and their wisdom all into account. But at the end of the day, there are times where the husband has to lead. In the 26 years of marriage for Charlotte and I, in the overwhelming number of decisions that we have had to make, you think of how many decisions you make in uh, a year as a married couple. Over 26 years, many decisions. And the majority of them have been mutually agreed upon. We see eye to eye on, and when we don't, we talk about it, we pray about it. Sometimes we, we ha- have difficulty landing on the same page, but it's only been a handful of times where I've had to say, Charlotte, this is as best as I hear from the Lord on this situation, this is what we are to do. And even if it is in stark contrast to where she is at. One of those significant seasons or significant decisions happened about 10 years ago now. We had weighed out the possibility of relocating to Kelowna. It took us like nine months to, uh, as we weighed it out and prayed about it and sought wise counsel and, and, and continued to weigh it out and talk about it. And, and, and we were looking at, at, at leaving a good situation in Alberta and moving here to the central Okanagan. There was so much prayer and angst and, and as I said, wise counsel and, dis- and, and discussion that went on. But then finally, there was one night in May. And uh, 10 years ago, I guess it would be in May, so 10 and a half um, years ago, after an extended night of prayer, I just said, I need to go and I need to, to hammer this out. We need to come to a decision. And, and Charlotte said, Meldon, whatever God is telling you, y- we have to do it. And, um, and so we spent this night seeking the Lord, and the next morning, Charlotte asked me, so what are we doing? And I told her, I said, we're moving, we're going. And she said, okay. Did she want to go? No, we had just moved into a new house the year before that. The kids were in great schools. I mean, we had a good life. 
good work, ministry, friends, school, community. And yet, she submitted to that decision. And you know, even as the months and the next few years would go on, things became incredibly difficult after that decision was made. And it seemed like there were times where that we were losing more than we were winning. And yet, in that time that we went through as a couple and as a family, there was never, I told you so. There was never, well, do you think you heard right from God? She never, ever said that. And Charlotte, I want to honor you and thank you for that, for your submission. You have no idea how much that means. And that sort of thing, God gives that responsibility to husbands and we take it carefully. We take it in the fear of God. Here's another myth, the last myth. Men are always right. And that one is another, uh, yeah, right, not quite. Even here it says in verse 1, it implies that, that men are not always right. It says some do not obey the word. And, and Peter is telling us that the husband can be wrong. And the husband can be disobedient to the word. He's talking about men. He's talking about an unsaved man here who has, has heard the gospel but is disobedient to it, has not followed and given his heart to Jesus Christ. And so we know it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to know that men are sinful and men are not always right. There have been many times where Charlotte and other women in my life, whether that be my mother, my mother-in-law, my sisters, co-workers, ministry leaders, wise women have saved me from stepping on potential landmines at times, making disastrous decisions. And so men, we need the input and the help from our wives and from the women that God has placed around us. But let's continue on here, uh, starting again. We'll just start over. We're going to get through these six verses, believe it or not. We'll get through it. Likewise, wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here Peter is talking about the powerful effect a wife's respectful and pure conduct can have on her husband. Now, I just want to say here, and this is important that I say this, that dating and marrying a non-Christian is forbidden in the word of God. That is very clear in God's word that that not ought to happen. But here Peter is referring to a wife who has come to know Christ and her husband is not saved. That, that since they had been married, she came to know Christ and her husband has heard the gospel, but he's been disobedient. He's not following. He's not, not interested. But we also see here that a husband can be won over to Christ in salvation, or it's also implied here that if a husband is already saved, that he will be propelled into deeper godliness by how a woman, how a wife lives her life. That they may be one, it says, without a word. Now, husbands, some of you might, um, you know, be thinking about underlining that in your wife's Bible right now. Don't do that. Maybe one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's talking about a life in the pursuit of holiness and Christlikeness here that is motivated out of a love and a fear and a reverence for God. This is how submission happens. It's not a begrudging, but it is a voluntary. 
It is something that a, that a wife desires to do out of a love and a respect and out of a fear for God, a worshiping attitude towards God. Peter is saying that they might be won over without a word. You see, the greatest influence a wife can have on her husband in leading him to Christ, or again, if he's already saved, to, to lead him and to propel him into deeper godliness and deeper holiness as a husband, to bring about true change, it's not going to come through words. It's not going to come through nagging or guilt trips or com- comparisons or manipulation or preaching at them or using passive-aggressive attempts to try to get them saved or try to get them going. You know, maybe some passive-aggressive attempts like, you know, signing him up uh, on his personal email account for daily Bible verses coming daily into his email account. Yeah, that may not work, go over too well if your husband doesn't know the Lord and is against uh, just anything Christian. Or, or leaving books on the, uh, around the house or on his nightstand about marriage or about seeking God or whatever it might be. Or, or maybe by changing his music playlist on his phone to all Christian music, getting rid of all the secular, yeah, that probably won't go over well. Or playing podcasts of sermons while you both fall asleep at night. Again, that's not going to go over very well. But he says that, that a husband may be won over. Not a guarantee, but the best chance... That a husband may be won over to Christ or to propel him towards godliness isn't going to come by your words, but it's going to come by your faithful actions of love and care and respect for your husband. By looking and trusting in the Savior and not your spouse. Again, we look to Jesus for this. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who voluntarily, willingly placed himself under his father's authority and submitted himself to his father's will and obeyed him right to the point of death, death on a cross. The only way that salvation is available for us today is because Jesus Christ submitted himself to the father. You and I have salvation today because of submission. There is life because of submission. He paid the price for our sins by his death on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He gave himself totally, 100% in free, voluntarily, even joyful submission, even though he wasn't looking forward to what was going to be happening. Philippians says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew that there would be good that would come as a result of his submission. And listen to, you can see these words from Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2. On the screen, starting at verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Moving on. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In verse 7, when it says there, if you look in your Bibles, or even if we could just go back to verse 7 there and have that up there, where it says, but he emptied himself. Understand this, Jesus did not lay aside his deity but he did voluntarily take a position of submission to God, to God the Father. And, and so we see this beautiful submission. And, and to this we have to say amen and amen. And so it's important. Living hope for marriage means that we look to the Savior. We look to his submission. We look to what Christ has done and not the sinner, not our spouse. Second of all, 
we go from, we, we go for, we strive for godliness and not the glamorous. And here we see how, how God measures beauty in a wife. Look at in verse 3. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And now, yes, perhaps your blood pressure could be going on some of this as you read this. I'm like, whoa, what's he talking about? Well, in Peter's day, in the Greco-Roman culture, there was a lot of similarities to today. It was a culture obsessed with fashion, jewelry, clothing, status, and reputation. That was all a big deal. And a lot of pressure was put on the women of the day to dress and to live accordingly. Now, here's a bit of a fun fact for you from from God's word. That word adorning, adorning that you see in verse 3 and verse 4, that's an interesting word in Greek the Greek form of that is the word cosmos, where we get the word cosmetics from, okay? So, so in other words, he's talking about cosmetics. It's interesting that the Greek word that is opposite to cosmos or cosmetics is where we get the word chaos from, which means literally a rude, unformed mass, <laughs> all right? Um, so, so one could say that Cosmetics were invented for the purpose of, a, of addressing some form of chaos. Now, I'm just going to leave it there, and I know I just have to get back preaching. I just thought you might be interested in that fun fact. Well, now the Bible does not prohibit women, our wives, from wearing nice clothing, uh, from looking and being attractive. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all. But we, in, in, in women... And men, husbands, wives, we ought to take care of ourselves. We are to care for our bodies. And there's nothing wrong with nice hair and clothes and jewelry and dressing up and looking beautiful. But it is the extreme of this. That, that we're spending enormous amounts of money on all the designer stuff, on all the latest and the greatest. And, and, and it's about our status. It's about who we are that we have to dress like this and look like this. Because it's, it's, it's the externals that, that we're focusing so much on. But yet it's so easy to get caught up in this way. To get caught up in the narcissistic, look at me, I've got this image, and, 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 and you know, just look at who, who I am. And we can easily become so obsessed with this. Women, but also men. And, and easily a spirit of jealousy, comparison can start to build. Or waiting and just living and and just kind of needing that next comment from someone or that next compliment or that next like or, or more followers so that we have more of a following and we see that we're being successful. Look at verse 4. But let your adorning, the cosmetics, let your beauty, what makes you beautiful, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is... God's sight is very precious. You see, when it comes to our physical bodies and appearance, hate to break it to you, but gravity wins. It wins every time. The chest slips into the drawers. And we are, and, and, and we'll end up bald and fat and wrinkled. And, and I'm just talking about men there. I'm not even going to touch, I'm not even going to comment on the ladies. I, I want to live past this Sunday. 
But what God is saying is that true beauty, here in his word, he's saying true beauty, what is precious to him, what is lasting, imperishable, is not the externals, it's the heart. It's the internal, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet, oh boy, what's that? Gentle, uh, gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, what is that about? Well, does that mean that women are to be seen and not heard? All dainty and prim and proper and tea drinking with the finger up and maybe it's kind of like, you know, the, what you see on Downtown Abbey or on The Crown? Uh, d- d- does it mean that, that women or wives can't be extroverts? He says gentle and quiet spirit, so I don't know. I guess maybe I should, you know, next, next event I go to, put some duct tape over my mouth. Is that what he said? No, not at all. Some men need an extroverted wife because some husbands can be kind of lacking when it comes to personality at times on the personality side of things, and so they need you to be an extrovert. But what a gentle and a quiet spirit means, is this is so good, this is so good as you dig into this, it means a friendliness of heart, of heart a meekness, as opposed to demanding, selfishly assertive kind of a mindset. So it's, it's a meekness. And quiet has to do with peaceful as opposed to being restless and unsatisfied and disturbed. And you know what this means? A gentle and a quiet spirit that is so precious to God. You know why it's so precious to God? Because he's describing Jesus. This is a call to be like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, write that down. The reference isn't on the screen, but Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus gives a description of himself, and he says, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And now listen, listen, listen. For I am gentle and lowly, gentle and quiet, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a lifestyle and a pursuit of godliness and not not glamour. And this is what God says is beautiful. This is what is imperishable. The externals come and go. The externals fade and flop. But the, inter- but the internal person grows and builds and becomes more and more beautiful. And lastly, focus on the promises, not the problems. See this in verse 5 and 6. This is about faith and not living in fear. This is about a long obedience following God. Verse 5, it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Here Peter is reminding us of Abraham and Sarah. You can read about them in Genesis 12 to 22. Eleven amazing chapters there about Abraham and Sarah. But both Abraham and Sarah had certain longings, desires, and even promises from God. But they didn't happen on their timetable. They happened on God's timetable. And, and, and those two were very different. And there were times that both Abraham and times that Sarah messed things up in their lives, in their relationship with God, and their marriage messed up royally. They were not perfect. They weren't always consistent or strong in their faith or in their obedience. But over time, we see this couple maturing and we see what God did in their lives. And, it says, and, and we see that Sarah trusted. She put her hope, her promises, in the promises of God. And even when things seemed hopeless and things seemed hard and things seemed frightening around her, she put her hope in God. And she submitted and respected her husband 
even through his mess-ups and his failures. In, in Genesis 18.12, and, and I believe that we have that on the screen, Genesis 18.12, or just the reference, we get a glimpse of Sarah's heart. Because there in 18.12, she, she refers to Abraham as her Lord. And, and she respects him. This is a respect that she has. And, and, and in saying this, it's coming under his leadership. But interestingly, when you read this in context, she didn't even call him Lord in this situation to his face because she was by herself. She said it in her spirit. She said it to herself. She said it in her spirit. But God heard it. And that was the disposition of her heart. There was a submissive heart, not a submissive by word only, but a submissive heart in calling him Lord and seeing him in that respectful way. And at the end, in the end, Abraham, but also Sarah are listed in the Hebrews chapter 11 hall of fame, of the faith hall of fame. The Christian life, being a woman, a wife, a man, a husband, a married couple, a God-honoring marriage is all about a long obedience by faith, trusting God in his promises, a long obedience in the same direction. Now, I think that there's been plenty of us for, for us to consider and to chew on things that we may need to repent of and change and put into practice in our lives this coming week. And when it comes to submission in marriage or to one another, and ultimately our submission ultimately is to God, we're going to stumble. We're going to fail. But in God's power and God's grace and God's forgiveness, we press on and we keep going. We learn as we look and draw from the examples of Scripture and what we see here that there is ultimately only one person on the face of this earth who's ever lived, who lived in complete and perfect submission to the will of God. And of course, that is Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death on the cross so that you and I could find life and living hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to take time at the end of our service here as we worship the Lord together to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a time we remember, and today I encourage you to remember the submission and the sacrifice of Jesus as we repent of areas of sin in our lives. And as the Holy Spirit reveals these areas of sin, you confess those and make it right before him. We repent, but then we also resolve we resolve to follow and to worship the one who is truly worthy of our worship. That it's Christ who lives in us. It's not I, but it's Christ that lives in us. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we remember that sacrifice and that commitment all because of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is for those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ and are desiring to live for him today. It doesn't matter if you have stumbled and you have fallen before in your relationship with God, we all will do that and spend time in confession and repentance. And if for whatever reason you don't want to partake today, that is completely fine. But encourage you upon, as we worship the Lord together in a few moments and upon spending some time in examination and prayer, come and partake of the Lord's Supper. There will be a table set up at the front at each one of our locations. And there... Uh, some communion servers will take and they'll place two cups, two cups like this, 
one inside the other. A cup will be placed on the table, and you can come and you can pick that up from the table. And in the bottom cup is the, ju- is the bread, and in the top is the juice. And you can then co- go back and continue to worship and partake whenever you are ready to do so. May this be a special time of worship, a special time of just thanking the Lord for his wonderful gift, for the gift of submission, the gift of life that we have. Let's pray together. And so God, even now, we are so thankful that we have the ultimate gift that has been set before us, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, who endured the scorn and the shame and gave himself in submission to his Father so that we could live. God, I pray that you would do a good work in all of our lives in every marriage, in every life, that we would see submission as something that is beautiful, something God-honoring, something that we can look to Jesus as that ultimate example. And God, I pray that even now you would accept our worship and our thanksgiving for all that you have done as we declare that we cannot live this life, we cannot live in these marriages on our own, we need your help. And so God, would you visit, would you work in each one of our hearts, in each one of our lives whether married or unmarried, oh God, would, would we worship you in spirit and in truth in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.